0: Thank you, choir. If you will go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the Book of John, chapter three. John chapter three, and uh, we are continuing in the series we started just a couple of Sundays or so ago, called three sixteen. Kind of an interesting little uh, uh, series title, uh, chapter reference, verse reference. And what we're doing is we're pulling out different passages of Scripture that are found at three sixteen, chapter three, verse sixteen. We started two weeks ago in Second Timothy, chapter three sixteen, and uh, we looked at the passage where uh, Paul writes to Timothy. He Says all Scripture is God breathed, and it tells us that the Bible that we have, the Bible that we read, is God's word to us. We can trust in that. We can bank on that. It's written by men, certainly. God used men, but over that, it was written by God, and so it's without error, and we can trust in it. And um, and, and and so we we started there, and rightly so, looking at Scripture. But then last Sunday we looked in the Book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter three, verse sixteen, a passage that talks about wisdom and it paints this picture of wisdom crying out in the streets and how. wisdom. Wisdom is calling us to itself, and of course, wisdom begins with God. We don't have wisdom without Him, and uh, the the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's what Proverbs tells us, and uh, we find that... When we use God's wisdom and we apply it to uh, to the details of our lives, then it guards us, it protects us, it preserves us, blesses us. And so, wisdom certainly starts with God. It comes to us through God. And uh, in order for us to acquire it, we have to desire it. We come to Him and we ask Him for it. James tells us that we can have it when we do that. And so, those were the first two messages in this series. Today, we're gonna we're, we're gonna uh, move over to the book of John, and we're gonna be looking at probably I would say the one verse that is the most well known verse and all of the entire world is found in John chapter 3, verse 16. It's a verse that many of you, uh, you memorized it when you were little kids. You, you got a sticker in, in uh, Sunday school when you were little, and maybe you got a little pencil with it printed on it. There are all kinds of applications of John three sixteen that exposes it to us from the times we were very, very little. And even as an adult, you haven't forgotten it. John chapter 3, verse 16. So years ago, 1986, there was a book that came out written by a guy named Robert Fulgham. I don't remember the book. I never read the book, but I, what I remember is the poster, and uh, the poster and the book were both titled, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Some of you remember that book. Maybe you read it, and uh, like I said, I never read the book. I didn't read a whole lot of books until college, and, uh, and so I didn't read the book, but I, I remember that poster that was up there, and it basically gave all these little, j- just little snippets, little nuggets of, of uh, wisdom for life. And it was things that the, the whole premise of the book is that you learned the most important details of life all the way back when you were a kid in kindergarten. And it was somewhat of a lengthy book. I won't read it, obviously, every single one of them, but a few of them. That I pulled out specifically are things that you learned way back then. And you're still doing today. For example, one of them: wash your hands before you eat. That was uh, reinforced by COVID, obviously, but it started back in kindergarten. Wash your hands before you eat. Another one: when you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. So that's kind of a good little premise for life. How we can apply that to our lives, and it's going to help us not just as kindergartners, but uh, even as adults. So this one here: you're going to you learned it in kindergarten. You're going to apply it later today. Take a nap every afternoon. Uh, what you, you learned that in kindergarten—that was a good thing. Those those were the good old days. And then a uh, last one here: warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Um, that's a that's a good one to keep in mind as well. So the the whole again the the idea behind that is that the most important things in life. You learned when you were little. They were foundational, right? You learned them in kindergarten. Well, John chapter 3.16 is very similar to that. John 3.16 is foundational. It's one of those foundational verses of the whole entire Bible. 66 books of the Bible, and yet they all kind of culminate in this one verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. All of the Old Testament is just sprinting to John 3:16. When the prophets are prophesying about a Messiah that's going to come, when they're talking about God's faithfulness and God's goodness, and God's God's everlasting love they are running towards John 316 in the gospels everything shines on John 316. When Jesus would be crucified and he's there on the cross and then at the empty tomb when he rises again, John 3.16 is overarching all of that, uh, all, all, of, all of the gospels. And then the, for the remainder of the New Testament from Acts all the way through the end of the book in Revelation, they look back to John 3.16 and, and it's like one, one big hand clap for what Jesus did that is expressed and that's, that's uh, explained to us in this one most memorable verse of Scripture, John chapter 3 verse 16. Now here's the thing about John 3, 16 that's real interesting. We're going to break it down here in just a second and kind of move through it uh, uh, slowly. But when you think about it, there are people who have never, ever even been in church. They don't sit in a seat like you sit in today. They've never occupied a seat in a church, never even really thought a whole lot about God necessarily, but they've been exposed to this verse in a variety of ways. I remember when I was a kid and I would watch television, I'd, I'd watch football on television and uh, there was this guy with a rainbow-colored wig who would hold up a sign, kind of similar to this. You see the John 3:16 sign there underneath the crossbar. And I remember as a kid, uh, I would I'd watch television. I'd watch football on television, and there was this guy with this wig. Now that's not him specifically. A lot of other people kind of followed his lead, but it seemed like he was at every single ball game in the NFL on the same day. I don't know how he appeared in so many different places, but you would see these signs, and you see him at football games and at baseball games and uh, all kinds of different sporting events. You'll still see signs like this that are out there for all the world to see. Now, interestingly, decades later after this guy kind of started all this back in, I guess, the 70s or the 80s, a fellow came along named Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow, very um, solid in his faith, uh, a very bold follower of Jesus Tim Tebow would uh, in 2009 play in the national title game quarterback of the Florida Gators I would love to meet Tim Tebow sometimes I, I appreciate his faith and the stances that he's taken on his faith but the only downside is that he did go to the University of Florida but other than that uh, j- just seemingly an amazing, amazing perp- person. Do we have his picture here? So so Tebow, this is from 2009, playing in the national title game. He won a couple of those and uh, some Heismans to go along with it as well. But here he is after winning the 2009 national title game. And you can see, I don't know if you can see from the back there, but in his eye black there, he's got John under one eye and 316 under the other. Now he's obviously celebrating because, they, again, they won the national title after this game. Well, interestingly... After they won the national title, and again he was kind of the front man for this whole the whole entire team, and uh, many would say the best college football player that ever played. But after this game, when he had this eye black on, and it was everywhere. I mean, all the interviews and everywhere that you looked, ninety four million people googled the meaning of John three sixteen during this game. Ninety four million people who said, I don't really know exactly what that is under this guy's eyes, but I'm going to Google it so that I can find out. I mean, that's just, that's, that's shocking on a couple of different levels. One, the numbers of people, right? The, uh, I mean, a third of our country, so to speak, and this would have been global, but a third of the population of our country is Googling, wondering what this means under this man's eyes. You know, they don't know. it. And then, then yet the other side of it is that he would be bold enough to just Put it out there at the same time. Now, here's the ironic thing. Three years after this game, this is the 09 National Championship game. Three years later, Tebow's playing quarterback for the Denver Broncos. Now, he didn't have a very lengthy NFL career, but his one shining moment uh, for a very mediocre Broncos team that particular year that somehow made the playoffs was that they played the 12-4 and 4 Pittsburgh Steelers, and um, Tebow led them to victory. And I remember seeing the end of that game on television. It was, it was incredibly exciting to, for them to win in overtime. And uh, during that game, again, three years later after this event behind me, three years later uh, when he leads the Broncos to victory and the dust had settled and they began to look at the stats of that game, Tebow's um, passing yards for that game was 316 yards, which is kind of interesting. And then even beyond that, now I've already said in this series, like, we're not really into to, to numerology and that kind of stuff. This is just really kind of cool to me. So he threw for 316 yards. He only had 10 completions for the whole entire game, which meant that uh, his average per completion was 31.6 yards per completion. And ironically, during the game, he played for the Broncos. The other team, the Steelers, their time of possession for the Steelers for the game was 31 minutes, 6 seconds. And then when they checked the, uh, at, at the end, when everything was done, and they checked the, um, the Nielsen ratings, the ratings for that game was 25%. So. <laughs> but for the last quarter hour of the game, the ratings were 31.6%. Which is kind of interesting, right? Interesting on a couple of different fronts, but interesting that 94 million people would wonder what's up with John 3.16. You even go outside of the world of football and outside the sporting world, there's a little restaurant on the West Coast called in and out Burger. Any of you ever been to in and out Burger? Any of you? I know a few West Coast folks in here. I got a shout-out in the first service. Some Somebody was here, and he's like, Woo! You know, for the in and out Burger. Apparently, y'all aren't so excited. I, I know if it was a high-class place like Crystal, you'd be hooping and hollering, I'm sure. But in and out Burger, on the bottom of their cups here, John 3:16, they've got them printed on their uh, on the cups there. And then uh, kind of even beyond that, outside the restaurant world, you go to Shopping World. This is where the ladies hooping and hollering in the first service because they couldn't let that one guy outdo them. On the bottom of the shopping bags for Forever 21 is uh, John chapter 3, verse 16 as well. So I say all that to say that Our world is familiar with the existence of a John 3.16. But even in, in, in the lives of many followers of Jesus, we don't really take the time to think about the context of John 3.16. In fact, if I were to ask the question right now, if I were to say, what was the context of th- John 3.16? What's going on in John chapter 3? Where was the conversation? What was the setting? A lot of Christians would say, Well, I don't know, but I can quote the verse for you. And that's a good thing, but the context is equally as important as well. So let's jump in to John chapter 3, verse 16. We're going to read the verse. And then we're going to kind of set the stage with the setting, and then we're going to move through the verse a little more slowly, and I'll get you out of here in time for Mother's Day lunch. So John chapter 3, verse 16. Let's read it together. I'm reading in the New American Standard. Some of you may have memorized this verse in a different translation, uh, but I'm reading out of the New American Standard. So it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you go back, we don't have this on the screen behind me, but if you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, it really begins to set the context for this verse. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. I want you to imagine for a second that you haven't seen John 3.16 on the bottom of a shopping bag or on the bottom of a fast food restaurant cup or on a person's eye black as a football player. You haven't seen John 3.16 on a sign in a sporting event. In fact, you've never even heard John 3.16 before. Let's just imagine that for a second, that if you were to read that verse that I just read for the first time with no context and no prior history, you'd probably be wondering, well, who on earth said this? Number two, who was he saying it to? Number three, why did he say it? And number four, what's the big difference for me today? Who is it that said it the first time? Who did he say it to? Why did he say it? And what difference does it make for me? Well, in John 3, we see that there was a person named Nicodemus that that, that begins to set the context. Jesus is going to have a, a discussion with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the Bible tells us, was a Pharisee. He was a part of this uh, religious uh, uh, leadership group, the Pharisees. But even beyond that, he was a part of a council called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was responsible largely for uh, overseeing the religious life of the Jews in first century Israel and they extended beyond first century, outside of just the first century, but in this, this day when Jesus is speaking this, he's about to have a conversation with this guy Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is a big wig in the religious circles. He's the one people would have come to with questions for him. He's the one who would have been saying, do this, don't do that, as it related to spiritual things. And this Nicodemus now, <clears throat> he's he's now caught wind of who Jesus is. In chapter 2 in this book, in the book of John, it tells us that Jesus had already cleared the temple. He's cleansed the temple. And so his ministry is starting. He's hearing about who Jesus is. Nicodemus, his curiosity for Jesus is growing equally as fast as Jesus's popularity. All right, he wants to know more about this person. And so let's move to, to verse 2 in John chapter 3. So it said this man, <clears throat> Nicodemus, He came to Jesus by night, all right? My notes tell me to insert a really bad joke here, uh, and so this is Nick at night, all right? Nicodemus coming at night. Every time I use that joke, whenever I'm in John 3, you always so graciously laugh, but I know you're sick of it, but I had to say it. So this man, Nicodemus, he came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we, that we there is kind of him representing the Sanhedrin, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, all right, that's a safe statement, <laughs> all right? Uh, the Pharisees are later, three years later, are going to be re- largely responsible for crucifying Jesus. This is a safe, safe statement for the Pharisee to say, hey, we know you've come from God as a teacher because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Verse three, Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? All right, so... In verse 2, we see the wheels are turning for Nicodemus. That's the way it often starts for a person who begins to um, move towards God in a relationship through Jesus. There's this curiosity that begins to build. And and there's this uh, sense of, I need to know more about Jesus. And maybe I need to consider even following Jesus the way the Bible speaks of it. This curiosity, this is kind of the way it works today. It's God drawing people to himself, maybe even you. But this is the way it worked in Nicodemus' life, too. He's got this curiosity. God's drawing him to know more about who Jesus is. And he comes to Jesus at night, and he asks this very safe question. And it's interesting because in verse 3, Jesus just sort of cuts through the clutter, and and he cuts right to the chase. And he says, listen, Nicodemus, I tell you, unless a person is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Now, verse 5, in just a second you're going to see, says he can't enter into the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is doing here, he's painting this picture that there are those who are outside of a relationship with God, outside the kingdom, and then there are those who are inside of a relationship with God, inside the kingdom. And what Jesus is, is doing here, he's, he's demonstrating to Nicodemus, he's helping to clarify that there has to be a change of position in your life for you to be able to say that you are in a relationship with God. Right? Just because we're American doesn't give us the, the privilege of saying, oh, I'm a Christian because I'm raised in a, you know, in a country where, where the gospel is preached. That doesn't make us a Christian. We have to see a change of position happen in our lives where we move from point A to point B. And Jesus says this is such a radical change of position. Look at what he says again in verse 3, that it can only be characterized by being born all over again. Now how awesome would it be? Think about Nicodemus here. You've got a New Testament. You've got a church that you've been to at different times in your life. Nicodemus didn't have that. He didn't have the New Testament. He, he had never been to church. He didn't have this whole Bible. He didn't have John three sixteen printed on a pencil that was given to him when he was in kindergarten. This is happening in real time. And when Jesus is telling him this, can you almost see the wheels turning for Nicodemus and beginning to think, how awesome would it be If all of my past regret could be taken away so completely that it can only be described as though I've been born all over again with a brand new life. You might even think that today. You might even think, how cool would it be if all of the baggage of my past and all of my sins could be so clearly dealt with and removed from my life that it's as though I have been given a brand new life and that I have been born all over again. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't understand. Let's cut him some slack. Again, he had never read John 3.16. He didn't know what Jesus is talking about. He just simply says, I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. How does this happen? I mean, I can't go back to my mother and recreate my birth and go back to the womb and be born all over again. I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 5, Jesus explains a little further. He says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So why would Jesus say this? I mean, again, why, why can't it just be that, you know what, we're all creations of God, God created us. Why can't we all just be children of God? Why can't God just swing open the doors of heaven and let us all in? Why can't God just turn a blind eye to, to, to my sin and just, just act like it doesn't exist and just go ahead and accept me and bring me into relationship with him? Why can't he do that? Well, because if he did that, he would not be just. He's a just God, he's a holy God, and he has to judge sin. The reason we have to be born all over again, the reason that we have to move from one status to another, from one position to another, is because of what the Bible tells us elsewhere. Look at what it says in the book of Ephesians, chapter two. I think we've got this on the screen behind me. Chapter two, beginning in verse one, Paul is writing this after the events of of Jesus's ministry, <clears throat> and he says, "You were dead." in your trespasses and sins. One of the reasons that we have to be so radically changed that it's like being born all over again is because without Christ, we are dead on the inside spiritually. We are dead because of our sin. Paul says it clearly. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 2, he says, In which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, right? We followed the enemy's ways, not God's, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, right? We lived without God on the radar, and we were by nature... Children of wrath, even as the rest. The picture that's painted there of a person without Jesus who's never been, as the words Jesus would use, born again, is this picture that we are dead in our sins and that we are under the wrath of God. And again, the reason for that is not because he doesn't love us, we're going to get to that, it's because he's just and he's perfect and he's holy and he has to judge sin for what it is you go down to Ephesians chapter 2 go a little further go down to verse 12 Paul is speaking here to the Ephesian Christians he says remember what it was like before you had Christ remember that you were at that time separate from Christ you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That That's our position without Christ. That's why Jesus would say to Nicodemus, man, your religion isn't going to get you into the kingdom of God. Just having some religious framework or some belief system is not enough. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. You've got to be so radically changed that the only way that humanly, within the confines of human language, that I can express this is that it's like you are going to be born all over again as a brand new person that's what has to happen because nicodemus without that you are dead in your sins and the wrath of god is over you that's the context of this conversation that's happening in john chapter 3 and so what is it that jesus exactly communicates in chapter 3 verse 16. Let's go back a little bit further. They have some conversation and they get down to where Jesus makes this comment in verse 16. Let's break it down quickly. He begins with God. He says, for God. He turns Nicodemus's attention to God. Nicodemus would have been accustomed to this. He would have had no issue with God. It was with Jesus that the Pharisees had issues Nicodemus would have had no issue with God God is, or Jesus is saying to Nicodemus that, uh, that that it's the it's God the creator to whom we're all accountable the creator who gave you life in the first place he says for this God the god that you you that that you seek to honor this god so loved and the Greek word that's used there is an interesting word. In our English language, we have three or four, actually, different Greek words that are used. A um, uh, fourth, fourth Greek word is one we don't often hear very often, but one of the Greek words for the word love is the Greek word eros. It means a romantic love. Another Greek word that we translate as love as love is the word phileo, which is a, a brotherly kindness, a friendship love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, that, that's what that Greek word means. But there's also another Greek word that we translate as love, which is the Greek word agape. That's the one here. And it means an unconditional love. A love that doesn't have any strings attached. It's a love that doesn't say, I'm going to love you until. And it doesn't say, I'm going to love you unless. And it doesn't say, I'm going to love you if. Many of you in here probably have been burned by someone, whether it was a parent, whether it was a spouse, whether it was a friend, (laughs) or someone else in your life who said, I will love you, and I do love you, but it came with conditions. They loved you until, they loved you if, and they, they loved you with some type of a string that was attached. That's not the kind of love that God has for us. God doesn't love us with that kind of a, a conditional love. He doesn't say, I'm going to love you until you do this. I'm going to love you if you do that. Or I'm going to love you with these strings attached. God just says, I love you unconditionally. For who you are, for where you are, that's the love that I have for you. And the cool thought is, is that there's nothing that we can do that's going to make God love us any less Now, that doesn't give us a free reign to go out and live life like crazy apart from him, but nothing we can do that's going to make him love us less. There's nothing we can do that's going to make him love us any more. He tells us there that he loves agape unconditionally. Who does he direct that love to? The world. For God so loved the world. It's a Greek word here, the Greek word cosmos. There, there are kind of two, two things in play when you think about the world, one of which applies here. Oftentimes we'll see later in the New Testament when the Bible speaks of the world, it's speaking about the belief system that's apart from God. For example, look at what John writes later in another. Another letter in the Bible, 1 John 2.15, he says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But well, John 3.16 tells me God loves the world. Now this verse tells me not to love the world. So which one is it? Well, there are two different applications for the word world in the New Testament. What what John's talking about here, 1 John 2.15, is that belief system where God is kicked to the curb. It's that belief system where God is not included. He he's not considered. He's not he doesn't reign because people don't bow before him as God. Right? That's the kind of world that uh that, that John's talking about in 1 John 2. And and you understand this. Sometimes you'll make the comment when something happens, you're like, this world, I don't know what's going on in this world, right? This world is just you know, th- th- that's what it's talking about. It's a world where God is not included. John says, don't love that kind of world. Don't love the embracing of things to the exclusion of who God is. And we have a real tendency to do that at times, even as Christians. We have a tendency to love that kind of world more than the world that God says He loves. For example, there, there, there's a principle here you may want to jot down. and The principle is this, that, that, that we as people oftentimes, we love the world to emulate it. Right? We glamorize the world. But what God did was that God loved the world to save it. He doesn't love the system where he's pushed out. He loves the people in the world who live like that. You and me included. For God so loved the world that he gave. Or maybe your translation says that he, that he sent He sent his only begotten son. Love is always followed by action. Love is not theory. Love is not just mere statement. Love is always followed by action. God said he loved the world, but then he sent his son to prove it. And it's that same son, Jesus, who would stand over the city of Jerusalem on his way in, where he would ultimately be crucified just days later. And he would cry over the city of Jerusalem because he loved the people that were there who didn't even know who he was. It's that same Jesus who stood at the tomb of a man named Lazarus with a bunch of other Jews and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, standing there, they're all weeping. And Jesus weeps. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty-five. 35. Not because he was without Lazarus. He was about to raise Lazarus from the dead in a matter of minutes. I believe he wept because... The people couldn't see beyond what this world had to offer. And they were missing it. It's that same Jesus that God sent into this world hanging on a cross between two thieves that would cry out to the Father, Father, forgive them, because they don't even know what they're doing. It's that love not for the world system, but for the people in the world. And the only reason that Jesus came was because it was a part of the divine plan from the very beginning that God sent he gave his only begotten son i used to wonder what does that word begotten mean it's kind of an old archaic king james sounding word what does it mean it just simply means unique it means one of a kind that's what it means that there is no one else in existence for god to sin that would be just like jesus why is that because jesus is god And he came and he lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death on the cross as a substitute, and a sacrifice in our place. So that when he died and when he was laid in the tomb, the sacrifice for sin had been made. And when he rose again from the grave, he proved himself to be God and able to take over every life that calls on him as Lord and as Savior. For God so loved the world that he gave not just anyone, he gave his only begotten son. And then it says, for whoever it's the greatest invitation that has ever been extended. You remember when you were a kid you get invitations to people's party, right? And it would come that maybe they give it to you at school and, and you couldn't open it until you got home and you got home and you'd open it up or it came in the mail and your mom told you, Hey, you got an invitation, Timmy's having a party, and you opened it up and, and it's like, Whew, there's my name, Timmy's having a party, it's at the bowling alley, and I want to eat a bunch of hot dogs, and we get nachos and cheese, and I want to drink a bunch of coke, right? And we're gonna bowl and we hang out with all my friends. This is the best invitation I've ever had. Remember those days? Apparently, you never got invited anywhere. I don't know. I remember those days. (laughs) Those are good days, man. It's like, I've been invited, I've been included, I'm, I'm called to the table, right? The doors have been swung open, and my name's on the list, right? Those were good invitations, but listen, they don't get any better than this, because John 3.16 says that God loved the world, including you, put your name there, so much that he gave his only son, that whoever, and you're still there, your name is still on that list, that whoever, including you, no matter how much baggage from the past, no matter how much sin from the past, no matter how much embarrassment or shame or guilt from the past, he says, your name's on the list, I love you, you're invited, that whoever whoever does what whoever believes in him, not just between the ears, not just an intellectual. Oh, I went to a Christian school. I know who Jesus is. I believe he existed. Oh, I, I I've been I, I had a grandma who read the Bible to me. I know who Jesus is. I believe that he exists. Not that kind of belief. It's a specific belief that says I believe so greatly that I'm willing to act on that belief because, see, love is not just theory. Love is action. Belief is not just theory or intellectual. It's action as well. And the belief that this John three sixteen verse speaks about is a belief that says, oh, I believe that he's God, that Jesus died and rose, but also believe to the point to where I'm willing to take my life and invest it in him and surrender it to him and to trust him alone to save me and take over. Amen. That's, that's the belief <laughs> that it's talking about. It's like the old tightrope guy, right, who, who ran the tightrope in the 20th century, early 1900s, and he'd run that tightrope between buildings. I forget what city it was. and He'd put that tightrope up so high, crowds would gather. and He'd yell down, how many people believe I can walk across this rope and come back? Oh, yeah, we believe. He'd do it and come back, and then cheer. How many believe I can, can walk across this, this, uh, this rope backwards and back to the other side? Oh, we believe. You know, the crowd's a little bigger. They're all going crazy. And he does it and comes back. And he says, how many believe I can push a wheelbarrow across here and come back? Oh, we believe. There's like more and more and more people now. And it's loud. It's a crescendo of people just going crazy down below. He pushes a wheelbarrow across, comes back. They're all cheering wildly. He says, how many think yeah, I, can, I can put a person in this wheelbarrow, push them across this tightrope, and come back without falling? Oh, we believe. And he says, who wants to get in? And the crowd fell silent. It's one thing to believe up here. It's another to say, Lord, I believe (laughs) that I need you so badly, that I'm tired of the life I'm living, and I'm ready to come alive instead of be dead in my sins, and I'm ready to come into relationship and be in your family, rather than to have your rightful wrath over my sin with no excuse that I can give. I'm ready for the new life. I'm ready to be born all over again. That's why Second Corinthians says that when we make that choice to follow Jesus, that it says that we've become a new creature. The old is gone. The new is come. Don't let the baggage of the seventies take away the meaning of what it means to be born again. It means exactly what Jesus said it means to be changed so radically that we move from the old life to a new one. And not only in this world, but whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life with Him in heaven as well. It's this verse that's foundational to the whole entire Bible. A verse that fewer than you realize really understand what it means to the point to where almost 100 million see it on tv and think i gotta find out what that's all about maybe for you you've heard it for a long time maybe you had a mama that taught it to you maybe you've read it in the bible maybe you've heard sermons like this many many times but you've never come to the place where you have truly shifted the control of your life from yourself to the person of jesus Maybe you've never come to the place where you've believed beyond just the intellectual to the point to where you've said in your heart, you know what, I'm willing to trust you, Jesus, to forgive me and to take over. And if you've never done that and you don't have that assurance, you know what's waiting is just your simple decision. He's already paid for it. (laughs) He's already done all the heavy lifting. He died, he rose. The only thing that stands now is the decision you're going to make. Am I going to get in the wheelbarrow or am I just going to watch from a distance and miss it? Let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. No one looking around. Maybe for you today on this Mother's Day, 2023, maybe God has spoken to your heart so loudly to where he's helped you to see that he loves you beyond what you ever really imagined. But maybe he's also helped you to see today that you don't have the relationship with him that you thought you did. Because your belief in him has only been an intellectual belief, you've never truly invited Jesus to forgive you and to take over your life, to make you brand new on the inside. Many in this room have done that, and you celebrate when you hear and when you read a verse like this, because you know the whole reason you're a different person is because a verse like that is true. But I want to talk for just a second with heads bowed and eyes closed to those that have never acted on this verse. You might have been in church for decades, but you've never trusted Christ alone to forgive and take over. You know what? If that's a desire of your heart, I'm not going to try to talk you into it. All I can do is just share the truth. God's got to draw you and you got to follow him, but I do want to give you an opportunity to take that step of faith if that's your desire What the Bible tells us is that when we call on the name of Christ to forgive and take over, that he does just that. He forgives us and he takes the old life and he washes our sins away as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't hold them against us anymore and he gives us a brand new heart and he gives us a brand new start and he gives us a brand new life. And today, right where you sit, if it's your desire, you can invite Jesus to forgive you and to save and rescue you and to be your Lord and your Savior, the way John 3.16 says. Right where you sit, you can pray a prayer like this. You can say, Lord Jesus, I know that I need you and I know that I've sinned and that sin has separated me from God. But today, I believe that you are God and that you died for me And that you rose again. And today as an act of my will. The best that I can. I turn from my sin. And I invite you, Jesus. To step into my life. To forgive me. And to take over. To be my Savior. To be my Lord. From this day forward. Help me to follow you. In your name I pray. Amen. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you prayed today and gave your life to Christ, it's not because of a magical prayer. It's because you expressed your trust in the person of Jesus, whose promise that today He's taken residence in your life and He'll never leave you and never forsake you throughout all of eternity. If you made that decision today, we would love to celebrate with you. We'd love for you to take one of those cards in just a moment in front of you, a connection card. If you would, you're still saved if you don't fill this out, but we would love to know that you made that decision. And on that card, there's a box at the very top in red that says that you've given your life to Christ as Savior. We'd love for you to check that box and give, give us a way to contact you. We just want to celebrate with you and share with you some, some next steps in your new relationship with Christ. Lord, we thank you today for the power of a verse like John three sixteen. Lord, that captures all of the Bible in one simple verse. That you, Jesus, came for us because you, God, loved us so greatly. And that you've paid the price so that we can be forgiven and have a relationship with the God who created us, not just today, but through always. We thank you for the hope. Thank you for the joy. Thank you for the peace. Thank you for the purpose. Thank you for the abundance that gives. And for those today who perhaps for the first time haven't given their lives to you, Lord, may we we as a church always be passionate about people coming to know and to grow in their relationship with Christ. Bless them, we pray, in Jesus' name.